Hello, hello. Welcome back to the show that never quits. Welcome back again to Nailed It. And you're with me, your host, Dr. Fix, along with my co-host, Dr. Cole. Tell him hello. Hello, 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 everybody. Welcome back again. This energy, he has really low energy. We, we got to work on this guy. No, I'm just kidding. All right. No, here uh, we go. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Just uh, bringing a little humor to you guys. But uh, we have a, a really, really great talk today. And I, I'm pretty excited about it. Uh, when when we were recording this, me and Dr. Cole was pretty much at awe, oh, man. I mean, we really had to bring out all yeah. the pens and paper because, I mean, he, he really went. I, I mean, really, he, he went through some things that was just very helpful. Yeah, uh, he broke it down. And for those who don't know, Nailed It Orthopedic Podcast. Now, we do try to gear most of our talks so that you will learn about the nails and bolts of orthopedics and learn the high yield uh, topics that will not only help you in the clinical setting, but also on the in-training board exam, because that's what matters. We got to pass this. We got to get through residency, guys, and it matters. So this actual topic, it does have some yield for the uh, for the board training as well, but it is also is very good for just the clinical setting. Uh, any intern or whoever handles the consoles can tell you. I mean, these fingertip amputations can be the bane of your existence sometimes if, if they come during the day when you're like super busy, and uh, now you got to spend 30, 45 minutes to an hour taking off this fingertip. It oh, is, yeah. It, it can be tons of fun. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, have, have you had a lot of those, Dr. Cole? Yeah, so when we're on hand call, you get a bunch of fingertip amputations, you know, a bunch of, I was on call July 4th, and of course, you know, you get the guys that are playing with the fireworks, and like, oh man, I was, I just held on to it just for a little too long, Doc, and I'm, you know, I'm just looking like, uh, I mean, okay, sir, you know, you lost about three, <laughs> about three fingers, but, you know, I guess it was worth it, I mean, I don't know. But yeah, so we do we do see a lot of these these types of injuries um, around here, and especially around holiday times or, or celebration times, or really kind of just any all the time throughout the year. To tell you the truth, absolutely, man. We were so lucky this year. Uh, so we we split hand call with the plastics team at our hospital, and luckily for our July Fourth weekend, we weren't on call, and it was so good because I think plastics got. I mean, I, I think it was bad. I think they had a rough night. Let's just say that. But uh, with that being said, I mean, like Dr. Dr. Cole said, I mean, you get this stuff all the time. It's a lot of a whole lot more work accidents than what you would think. I mean, we get those all the time. Someone saw their finger off or their hand got smashed in between a ladder and a wall or something. I mean, we get a lot of that. Uh, and sometimes we even take a little bit of a hand call at the uh, children's hospital and, you know, kids shut their hands indoors and stuff like that. So yep. it's pretty all interesting. But let's get to it. So, all right, we kind of let the cat out the bag. This talk is going to be on fingertip amputations with Dr. Michael Goschak. Uh, Dr. My- Michael Goschak, he did his internship slash residency at Emory University, and he did his fellowship in hand and upper extremity at NYU uh, Langone Hospital. Uh, like I said, this is a wonderful talk. I've already listened to it about two or three times just to kind of take down some of the concepts. He did an amazing job trying to explain this stuff over audio without video. I think you can get a really good sense of how this works without even actually seeing it 
as you listen. So I hope you guys enjoy. You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring doctors Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole. Dr. Goshock, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Welcome to Nailed It Podcast. Thank you guys for having me. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Of course, of course. And kind of what we wanted to start off with and do, typically we kind of start off our interviews, we have like a one-liner, you know, like how you're in the hospital and you might go to a patient and you're presenting a patient, you say, this is a 34-year-old male uh, here for X, Y, and Z. Ours, we want to do that, but we kind of want to do it with ourselves. So, for example, mine may be a uh, 24-year-old male about to be orthopedic surgery intern, loves to salsa dance and exercise and try new food. Or, for example, Dr. Fitz may be a uh, 27-year-old uh, entering intern, orthopedic intern who enjoys uh, paragliding and riding dirt bikes. So, so for you, what would what would your one-liner about yourself be? Sure. 35-year-old male, assistant professor, Emory University, family man, two kids, one dog, and uh, I work a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Perfect. That sounds right. Awesome, awesome. Now we just got a couple questions kind of just to get to know you. Uh, So the question I have for you is what advice would you give to yourself at age 25? If you could go back and give yourself some advice. Uh, That's a great question. One, I'd probably say time is fleeting, so enjoy every moment of everything. That includes everywhere from education to the time off of education, uh, meaning that you know you're, you only live once. Residency, it's very hard to take time off, so during the time that you do have off, spend it wisely. Okay, that's that's great advice. And actually, I'm, I think I'm going to take that as the next, the second question. What was the the hobby or the activity you did during your training that was kind of your stress relief outside of working? Sure. So I used to do a couple things. One was working out. But that's probably most guys, uh, what they do in order to relieve stress, go relieve some anger. The other thing is I used to do a lot of fly fishing, which I probably don't do as much anymore, but part of that's just being a family man and having a lot more uh, higher workload than I used to. But having a good hobby and a good way to relieve stress is very important in residency. Yeah, totally agree. Love it. Uh, I love it. Uh, all right, cool. So let's go ahead and hop into the case here. Let's talk about these finger amputations. And uh, kind of typically what we like to do is start off with a case uh, with a case presentation and kind of just go from there. So say uh, say somebody comes into the ER. Say we have a 30-year-old male presents to the ER after sustaining injury to the distal phalanx of the right index finger after his finger was caught in a meat grinder at the workplace. So that comes in. What are some of the things that you kind of want to be on the lookout for when you take a history from this patient as well as a physical exam? Sure. So it's a great case example. Workplace injuries are very common for distal tip amputations as well as car doors, door jams, um, any of those types of things. Pretty much the physical exam or history and physical exam starts off just like any other. First off, you want to know the patient's dominance, uh, what they do for a living, whether or not they're up to date on their immunizations and vaccines. You also want to make sure when you're examining any patient that comes to the ED that you don't miss the usual kind of what we call ABCs, you know, the airways, breathing, circulation, things that, you know, God forbid they had some sort of environmental exposure that's different and or above that you don't want to miss. 
So once you clear the patient of, let's say, um, you know, bigger injuries that may be that may be more life threatening, and you dial it down to the extremity, that's what I'm going to focus on now for you. So obviously, on an extremity examination, you want to see exactly how they're holding their finger. You know, were there tendon injuries? So are, is their finger straight? Is it bent? Do you see a nice cascade of the fingers? That's things that you look for as well. Obviously, you're going to look for structures that have been evulsed off. Do you see what we call stripping injuries where, you know, there's several centimeters of the tendon hanging out of the wound? Uh, you know, all of those things are important. Of course, vasculature is also important. You want to make sure that the tip looks like it's alive and bleeding. Sometimes people will come in with the amputated body part. And so then we like to say, well, how much of the, where exactly is the amputation? Is it at the level of the tip or is it more proximal to that at the level of the proximal phalanx, middle phalanx, things of that nature? These are all things that as an attending surgeon, I want to know. And I oftentimes will ask the residents, well, what about this? Did you find, uh, you know, did you find that there's enough soft tissue coverage? Um, how much bone is exposed? All of those things are important factors. And when we're looking at the tissue, how can we kind of kind of um, decide what's good, healthy tissue, like what's viable tissue and what tissue is non-viable? Sure. So the mechanism of injury will often lead lead you in the direction of what of whether or not the tissue is viable or not viable. Perfect examples of this is one that you just mentioned: a meat grinding incident versus, let's just say, a, a, a samurai sword or a knife, right? So a knife is a very, very sharp, clean uh, clean cut, whereas a meat grinder, a uh, tortilla press, which I've seen before, or, uh, you know, car, car jack problems or any of those types of things, you tend to see a little bit of a different type of injury. Sawing injuries are very common, table saw, circular saw. Those tend to be, those tend to be more grinding, chewing type injuries because of the way that the saw, saw blades are manufactured. And, those, and that is a very valid point. Any... Any tissue that doesn't look clean, clean cut, is oftentimes very macerated or less durable tissue. However, we try not to over-excise tissue if we don't think we need to because every little millimeter can count when we're talking about coverage. I think one of the probably the most important things is the level of the amputation, the direction of the amputation, and the structures that are involved, which we'll get into later on in the podcast based off of anatomy, as you mentioned. Okay. We're going to, like you say, we're going to definitely touch on anatomy probably next. But just since we're talking about the, the physical exam, uh, and as an attendant, what, what do you usually see that the resident usually tend to miss during the H&P in a case like this? Sure. So interestingly enough, some of the things that you have to do as a physical exam when you have an amputation or you have lacerations to the fingers, there's several. One is sensation to light touch and or pinprick. That's one. Two is sensation to two-point discrimination, so their ability to tell two points apart from each other. Five millimeters is normally normal, uh, or we say less than six millimeters or five, five equal to five or less. Uh, also, the fact whether or not there's been arterial injuries, so normally using a Doppler to Doppler out the distal uh, tip or pulse of stuff if there's a partial amputation. And then, of course, besides that is whether or not their flexor or extensor tendons are working to the various aspects of the digits. And that includes, you know, your flexor digitorum profundus, your flexor digitorum superficialis, 
and then in several cases, your flexor pulsus longus and or the extensors of the fingers. It's nice to have a very simplified single examination per finger so you know that all the tendons are intact and that they have good neurovascular exams. Now, and I remember when I was doing my rotations, we had a case like this, and I saw on the physical exam that, you know, sometimes resident may go and prod the bone. Now, is that something that you should be doing? You should be going to feel, uh, like put on a glove and, and look to see if you can actually feel the bone sticking out, or is that something that you typically would not suggest? Like, how would you, what's your take on that? No, sure. So the other thing that I would mention before you even get to that part is a lot of these people are often painful, right? So they come in with either a partially amputated or a completely amputated distal finger, distal fingertip, and before the ER numbs them up, it's ideal to get a nice physical exam of their nerves beforehand. So eventually what I would tell you is, yes, you do want to be able to feel the distal tip of the finger and whether or not there's exposed bone or not. I do think that's an important part of the physical exam, but I would probably want to do that after I've numbed up the finger, depending on what I, my decision is to do for it. But prior to numbing them up, you're going to want to know whether or not they've got sensation in their tip. I think this is a good a good part here. So, um, so we we just to kind of step away. Can you just kind of go over some of the anatomy of the nail as well? So the anatomy of the nail um, is actually one of the parts that I think most people aren't comfortable with because we don't go into great depth about it in medical school, truthfully. Right, it's probably one of those things that's overlooked. Absolutely. As a hand surgeon, we go into great detail about it, and there's several different aspects of the nail and/or nail bed that we go over. The first one, which is probably the most common and commonly referred to, is the epinicium. and that is the the soft tissue on the dorsal side of the finger that's the most proximal aspect of the nail plate, and that area is what we call the epinicium. It can oftentimes get infected where, uh, from people that go get uh, manicures, believe it or not. Mm-hmm. And right. so that's the part that oftentimes gets infected. It's the back part, uh, the dorsalmost surface that, that's deep, pretty close to the terminal tendon. Uh, there's normally about four millimeters between the terminal tendon and the germinal matrix and the epinicium. The perinicium is kind of on the side of your fingers. Uh, that's the side part of the nail where the nail meets the skin on the side parts. And that's what we also refer to as the lateral nail folds. Then, of course, you've got what we call the hyponychium. The hyponychium is almost where the pulp of your finger meets the nail itself. And that's what, that's what they refer to as the keratinous material beneath the distal edge of the nail um, where the nail bed meets the skin. And then last but not least is the lunula. The lunula is that white portion of your nail plate um, that you see, it kind of looks like a, the reason why you get lunula or lunar, it kind of looks like a half-shaped moon. And that demarcates the, the sterile matrix, which is uh, the part that makes up the vast majority of the nail itself, what you can see from what we call the germinal matrix, which is where the, the actual nail stems from. And then, of course, when we talk about the nail bed, we defer that into two different sections. The sterile matrix, which is where the nail plate uh, adheres down to the finger, and then the germinal matrix, which is proximal to the sterile matrix, and that's responsible for the nail growth itself. Now, damage to either one of these will give you a different deformity in the nail. So damage to a germinal matrix may cause the, may cause the nail not to grow where at, and or grow in weird shapes, whereas damage to the sterile matrix may give you uh, different 
humps as well as uh, it will take away some of the shininess of the nail. So each one technically can cause problems. You just get different problems depending on what you have. And, and when we're when we're doing the physical exam, is there one that we kind of want to uh, zone in on, and, and we kind of want to make sure that we can can see this uh, can see this structure or, or anything? Sure. So the physical exam for crush injuries and for injuries like this, where you oftentimes have a an amputation, you want to know where exactly the amputation is through the nail plate. So is it through the sterile matrix? Is it through the germinal matrix? Are they disrupted, or is there a large hematoma underneath the nail itself? All of those things are important, and part of that's because once you start treating these distal amputations, it's very possible the nail may not grow in properly, and you have to counsel patients about that, that they may have to come back and or have another surgery for their nail. Uh, There are things as well, when you're reattaching a distal tip, if you are, let's say it's a partial amputation and you're reattaching it, you want to make sure that you put nice small sutures back into the sterile matrix. Um, other people for, let's say, crush injuries where it's not actually an amputation but it's a crush injury, some people will remove the nail plate for the open sterile matrix underneath it and either put 6-0-chromic sutures into the tears or put dermabond on it. There's a study uh, uh, in the Journal of Hand Surgery where they looked at dermabond versus sutures and both worked out very well. Interestingly enough, though, what I would tell folks is if you're going to use Dermabond, you've got to let the Dermabond completely dry before you put the nail back on because otherwise the nail becomes adherent to the sterile matrix. And oftentimes if someone comes back later trying to lift up the nail, it can actually cause more damage. So nice little tip. Hmm, perfect. Thank, thank you for that. And and so at what point are we going to be getting imaging in these patients? You know, they come in, fingertip laceration, or amputations, and, you know, we, we've done a physical exam, we've looked, we've tried to identify uh, where where it's cut off, if, we, if it's in the sterile matrix, germinal matrix, uh, the lunula, like, what, what, where, at what point does imaging come in? Sure, so imaging, honestly, is one of, almost one of the first things that we do, and it can give you a little bit of an idea of how much bone may be exposed. Oftentimes, you can see some of the soft tissue, you can see how much bone may be missing, so it honestly should be one of the things that you go to first. It's normally very easy to get, and it doesn't require it doesn't require a digital block to get it, and most people are able to do it. It's also important because you want to make sure that they don't have another injury somewhere else in the hand also. So from my standpoint, it's, it's definitely high on the list. Most people, you just want to triage, make sure that they're not having anything major going on in regards to another part of their body. And once you've limited that it's an extremity injury only, then imaging may be the next step, even sometimes even prior to the actual physical exam itself. Well, yes, sir. As, as far as on the AP and the lateral uh, X-rays of the hand, is there anything? Well, I guess is there do any of these uh, anatomy marks stand out more, like better on one than the other, or is pretty much both uh, about the same? So it's actually really hard to see any of the nail bed or distal fingertip anatomy on the x-ray themselves. You don't oftentimes get a chance to see that. However, the different type of fracture or fracture pattern can be very important when we talk about tuft injuries or distal, distal phalanx injuries. And a lot of the time you can get associated tendon avulsion fractures, both of the terminal tendon or of the flexor digitorum profundus or flexor pulsus longus tendon you can actually get avulsion injuries with those as well. 
And so you real, the x-rays can be crucial, and you have to scrutinize over them to make sure that there's not other injuries as well in the phalanx that may need more attention than just what, what I would consider soft tissue coverage, which is probably more often what you're going to end up seeing in regards to distal fingertip amputations. What are, what are some of those other those other um, those other conditions that that you might see that that could be alarming that would cause more attention that you know that now that you mention it? Sure. So it's interesting, right? So what I would tell you is that you can see dislocations of the distal interphalangeal joint, and it's not as apparent on exam as one would think. Part of that's because of the local swelling that you end up seeing with bad injuries also. So it can mask the fact that you've got a dislocation. And obviously a dislocation is something that requires immediate attention to, for reduction. And oftentimes if there is a dislocation, it's normally dorsal if there's no fracture, and that will require flexion of the MP joint and PIP joint down to take tension off of some of the structures. Uh, and, and that oftentimes can be relocated with a digital block. If it is volar, often it's associated with a fracture of the terminal tendon slip and it's normally a subluxation or a dislocation volarly of the of the joint. Obviously, the joint reduction um, takes precedence as well in regards to also having soft tissue coverage. But those are things that can be seen uh, together uh, quite often. Okay. So so once we once we go through all this, we've done our physical exams, we've gotten our imaging. How do we approach treatment of of these finger amputations? Sure. So the treatment, it's, it's normally a relatively speaking straightforward algorithm, and oftentimes we treat adults and children very similarly, with the exception is that adults have a much higher chance of, pardon me, children have a much higher chance of healing most of these soft tissue wounds. And so the first thing that we like to talk about is the size of the area that you're missing in regards to these distal tip amputations. Is it one to two centimeters or less? If it's one to two centimeters or less and there's no exposed bone, oftentimes we'll just do secondary intention or granulation of the tissue. And that may include, you know, using zeroform dressings or wet to dry dressings um, over the course of several weeks that oftentimes will heal in. And it's remarkable of how well the skin actually looks in regards to the new purposeful skin. If there's exposed bone or if there's a larger area than, than two, one to two centimeters, then you start talking about what we would consider operative intervention. And it doesn't necessarily have to be done in the operating room as so much as what I would consider a procedure where it's done in the emergency room or in the operating room, depending on, on a certain comfort level. So I'll probably start with the, with the most simplest form and move into the more complex as we go down. So, sometimes there's some exposed bone, however, the amount of exposed bone is very little, and there's enough of a soft tissue flap to cover. That's what I would be considering a shortening enclosure or a primary closure with a revision amp. And that's pretty pretty straightforward where, where you, you get a rongeur from the operating room, you bring it down to the ER, you take a little bit of the exposed bone that's there, and then you take whatever some of the tissue is and you get it to cover over, assuming there's a flap of tissue that will come over. Occasionally, the, uh, that flap may die, but oftentimes you've got a nice tissue coverage that works. I highly recommend if you're going to be doing any suturing on these patients, you use chromic or absorbable sutures since the tip can be very sensitive. Okay. Other options, um, 
is you want to try and preserve any of the flexor and extensor uh, tendon insertions. So if you think you're going to have to shorten it all the way down to the DIP joint itself, you can take, you can sacrifice the tendons. We don't normally tie them together, but you can sacrifice them if you have to, if you're going to do a disarticulation. Uh, however, and, and on with, when you do that, oftentimes you'll have to look at the germinal matrix, make sure there's no germinal matrix left at all anymore. And you can normally either pull the volar or dorsal tissue over up to itself and close that without issues. Um, there are there are other things that you can do as you start going down the list, right? So let's say you have a I do have a really quick question. Sorry to interrupt. Um, but no, how do you no, not at all. you just you just mentioned shortening? So how do you know when to stop uh, when, when you're shortening? When you know you you got your ronjor, and how do you know where where you're stopping at? You know, you just said sometimes you may have to. You may have to sacrifice some of the some of the uh, flexor extensor tendons, but how do you know when to stop? Sure, that's a great question. Oftentimes, you you kind of take enough bone, and then you try and say, "Well, can I get soft tissue coverage here?" So sometimes you take some bone, you try and get your flaps to come over, and if it's still very tight and you don't get good coverage, then it's like, "Well, you need to take a little bit more." Oftentimes, I, I normally tell folks it's surprising you have to take a little bit more than what you think in order to get tensionless closure of the wound. Okay, perfect. Thank you so much for answering that. Sure, not a problem. And then some of the things that we like to talk about after just primary closures is skin grafting options. So let's say you've got a large avulsion injury of the skin off and you have a nice volar tip surface. You can also do uh, skin grafting, either full thickness skin grafts or specific types of grafts where you take um, either the small finger to the hypothenar area or the index finger to the thenar area. The biggest issue with those types of uh, grafts, where it's not like a free graft that you're taking over, is you end up with flexion contractures oftentimes of the joints. So you got to be careful with that. Um, more often than not, when we talk about fingertip injuries, we talk about the location of the injury and we talk about what I would consider the geometry of the injury. What I mean by that is, um, one is the digit, so is it the thumb, index, middle, ring, or small finger? And two, whether or not it is what we call a straight laceration or transverse cut, which is just straight perpendicular to the finger itself, whether it's a dorsal oblique cut, where you take more dorsal tissue than you do molar tissue, or whether or not it's a volar oblique cut, where you take more volar tissue than you do dorsal tissue. Those, all those amputation types or geometries determine what you can or cannot do to the distal fingertip. And the nice thing is if you use orthobullets, orthobullets has a great example of a lot of these different things. And honestly, what you do varies based off of the geometry of the laceration itself as well as which finger is affected. So I'll start off with just very generic ones. A straight or dorsal oblique laceration where, where you are missing more dorsal tissue than vulgar tissue is a great, uh, one of the best options for that is what we call a VY advancement flap. That's normally something I would do in the operating room. It takes a little bit more finesse. You start off making a V cut in the pulp of the finger and you undermine with a pair of scissors and you advance it distally and that's why it goes from a V to a Y. And that works very well. It saves you sensation. It doesn't devascularize the pulp. It can work very well for smaller type injuries. 
it can be a little technically challenging. You have to undermine more than you think. And it's probably something that you should see done first by an attending surgeon before you do it as a resident yourself. Absolutely. I, just listening to it, I was I was like, yeah, that, that sounds like it takes a, a little <laughs> finesse there. Might take a few years to get that one down. No, but uh, definitely, I'm glad you explained that to us, though. That, that actually helped break it down a lot for me. Perfect. I think that's that's exactly that's perfect where I would tell you as far as having someone senior do it first, then you can see it. Can it be done in the ER? The answer is yes, but I first would want to see someone more senior do it, and I think that's very good advice. Once you go from a straight or dorsal laceration, we often will talk about the volar or volar oblique laceration. There's several different options for this depending on which finger is involved. One, you can do a full thickness graft, and normally we want a large thickness graft or a full thickness graft either from the hypothenar area or from the anacubital fossa. That's a very reasonable option. Other options besides those include using a cross finger flap for any of the digits in the middle of your hand, such as the, the, um, uh, such as the ring, the middle, or the index. And then for the small index finger, you can actually do uh, what they call a phenar flap or a hypothenar flap. So the biggest issue with those is what I was mentioning earlier, that you run a risk of contractures of the digits, and oftentimes you have to keep the finger flexed down for several weeks before you separate the flap from the actual phenar or hypothenar area. Okay. Uh, yeah, I can see that one being uh, a little different there, having that finger stuck to the phenar area, but uh, it's very interesting, though. Right. Sure. So in case you were wondering what a cross-finger flap is, a cross-finger flap is where you take skin from the dorsum of, let's say, the uh, dorsum of the, of the middle phalanx or so, and you actually will flip it over and underneath to, to get you pulp, um, to get it to the pulp, and then you'll, you'll skin graft the donor site, yet again, with normally a full thickness graft. Now, one thing that is new that it does not get talked about very often is some of these synthetic uh, collagen Based substances such as Integra, and I, I get no royalties from Integra or anything like that, but those have been very useful for some of these amputations. Other things have been using amniotic membranes, also something that's kind of new, but all of those actually work very well, and oftentimes they end up giving you a fairly good cosmetic-looking fingertip. Similarly, if you've got a dorsal finger and or MCP laceration, you can do a reverse cross-finger flap where you're taking skin from the volar side and moving it dorsal from another finger. Same thing, though, you still have to grasp the, the donor side. Normally, I, my recommendation for those is when you have very large, uh, deep, thick wounds and you have exposed tendon. In regards to some of the other ones, uh, some of the other fingers, so the thumb is a little different than most of the other digits. And part of that is because you've got a dorsal blood supply to the thumb that is not readily apparent in any of the other fingers. And that's normally from the princeps pollicis artery. Because of that, volar wounds of the thumb, you can do almost a complete advancement of the volar skin with both neurovascular bundles and the thumb will still live. And that has a specific name. That is called the Moberg Advancement Flap. Okay, the Moberg Advancement Flap. 
Correct. That is where you take pretty much the entire volar skin of the thumb and you advance it distally. The biggest complication with those is some people often end up with a slight flexion contracture of the interphalangeal joint of the thumb. All right? That is a very – if I was going to tell anyone what to remember from our podcast, that is a very commonly tested question. For patients that have a volar tip amputation to the thumb, the Moberg advancement flap is the one to use, and the complication is interphalangeal joint flexion contracture. That's a, one of the most commonly asked questions. Okay. And, and I and I had a quick uh, question from earlier. We were talking about uh, cross-finger flaps and thenar flaps, and you were saying you had to – you have to get a uh, you have to get a a donor you have to get a thickness graph of the donor. So can you kind of explain just kind of how that works one more time? Sure. So what we do is you take the skin and you don't separate all the skin. You take three sides of a square or a rectangle, depending on the on the size of your your defect, and you rotate the flap onto the other digit while keeping it attached to the same digit still. Then you leave it that way for several weeks while the while the flap incorporates into the new donor into the donor site, pardon me, into the recipient site. And then on the donor site, at the time of the initial surgery, you will take skin either from the hypothenar area or from the antecubital fossa and graft into it. Now with Integra and other stuff, you could probably just Integra that as opposed to taking a graft, and that would be just fine too. And that and, and those flaps work well. There's that's also something that you probably would do in the operating room and not so much in the ER. And you also would probably want to see one of your senior levels or attendings do that procedure before you attempt it yourself. Okay, perfect, perfect. Thank you so much for explaining that. I we were uh, trying to trying to just get a complete grasp on that, and you know, for all the listeners, just all, that never hurts to just uh, speak about it twice, just so they can kind of listen to it again and kind of understand it. Um, yeah, yeah sure. so we'll, we'll let you go ahead and, and keep going. Sure. So one of the one of some of the other interesting flaps that are available, um, we talked about the VY advancement flap for dorsal oblique lacerations. For transverse lacerations, there's also you can do VY advancement flaps on either side of the finger, and that's actually known as Cutler flaps, and that's similar principles to the VY uh, advancement flap. Uh, and or for patients that have a radial or ulnar-based um, oblique laceration. The other thing that I normally will tell folks is some specialty flaps is the first dorsal metacarpal artery flap, and that is something where you take a flap of tissue based off of the first dorsal metacarpal artery that comes along the first dorsal interosseous muscle, and you will take a side portion of the skin on the on the side of the uh, index metacarpal on the radial aspect, and you can draw a square out, and you can actually trace the artery with the Doppler, and you can move that skin dorsally over to the thumb for dorsal thumb injuries or uh, for 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 stuff where even oftentimes even for the volar aspect of the thumb, there are there are special tight flaps, um, what they're called tight flaps, and. Those are a little more tricky in my opinion. I don't use those often because you're often sacrificing a whole nerve vascular bundle and pedicle from another finger to bring over, and I'm not sure that it's worth doing, honestly, in the hand, but those would be something worth looking up, maybe beyond the scope of our podcast. Okay. Um, Perfect. The uh, What we didn't talk about, the, the other issues are sometimes 
you can actually just do rearrangement flaps. What I mean by that is you can create special geometries on the skin, uh, what we call like a Z-plasty, if you've ever looked that up. And the Z-plasty with 60-degree flaps can get you almost 50% more coverage in some, in some instances. And that's when we start thinking about the first web space. Uh, and that's getting coverage in the first web space or getting uh, deepening the first web space. Right. The, the other, for people that have large, uh, large defects in the hand, we start thinking um, outside of tip amputations. We start thinking of potentially using a groin flap, uh, potentially using uh, an abdominal flap, and or starting to, to do free flaps, an anterior lateral thigh flap, what they call an ALT, or using a reverse radial forearm flap. Those are also probably beyond the scope of just this this um, discussion, but those are more for people that have very large degloving issues in the hand. So, so I guess my next question would be, you know, out of all these flaps, we kind of spoke on on some of the complications of of a couple of them. But what are some of the, I guess, more more common complications or some of the outcomes of uh, of all of these different procedures? Sure, most of them honestly do very well because the finger is such a vascularized area. You can get a lot of nail complications, so where the nail doesn't grow properly, you get deformities in the nail. Oftentimes, you can get what they call a hook nail, where the nail grows down. I normally will tell patients to keep their nails short, short to make sure it doesn't overgrow. Um, that's probably one of the most common is hook nail deformity. Uh, flap failure, where you debride it too much, or you're undermined too much of a, the little flap. Uh, that can oftentimes cause issues. And then, of course, contracture of the digits is what we were talking about. I often tell folks to keep to keep it simple whenever you're doing these flaps and try not to get over creative uh, in regards to, to getting coverage. And I think oftentimes the simplest techniques are the ones that work the best. So secondary intention, honestly, is a great option. Shortening enclosure is also a very, very good option. Once you get into some of these little smaller flaps, uh, it becomes a little more difficult and you, you really have to know what you're doing. Um, or you can do some damage in those cases. Okay. Uh, that's, I think that was great. Um, just the last thing to, before we finish up. Uh, so this patient comes in, they have some kind of traumatic event, and now they're about to lose their finger. We've done, we've done these techniques and uh, surg- surgery procedures on them. What do you kind of tell them as far as, you know, rehab or the prognosis or kind of what to expect next once we, we've done our Sure. So once we've done what we can in the emergency room, oftentimes patients need a fair amount of counseling and a fair amount of occupational therapy. And that's important because sometimes these people have to relearn how to do things because they're missing a portion of their index. And they may bypass their index to go to their middle finger to perform pinch activities. And that, that can be difficult for some people to grasp. And so oftentimes we'll send folks to occupational therapy to get a good handle on how to do some activities of daily living, whether it be starting a car, opening a door, all of those different things. And that can be important. I often counsel patients extensively that it's normal to either have depression after these types of injuries, have phantom limb pain, all those things. And it can take a significant amount of adjusting. So I think all of that, that's important. I think it's a very valid point that it's, it's important to let patients know that their, their expectations may change over time and that these injuries can take long to recover from. Okay. Well, 
Dr. Gosh-Talk, I think this was a, a great overview. I mean, it, it was really a full lecture. I, I feel like we touched a lot. Uh, like you say, I feel like a lot of this uh, hand information doesn't get uh, just just not as well known as some other things. So I really appreciate you coming on and kind of breaking this stuff down for us. Um, is there any other points that you think residents should know or that, uh, in your experience, are often missed by residents or uh, something like that? No, not not necessarily. The only thing I would tell you is that these are probably most, one of the most common injuries uh, you'll get called for down in the ER, and um, it's always good to have a good handle on them. One of the things that people always ask is whether or not to take off the nail or not for people that have these crush injuries. Sometimes it's obvious where the whole nail is black and you take it off. Other times it's less obvious. One thing we didn't talk about is trephination, where you put a little hole in the nail to decompress the hematoma. Uh, I think if the nail looks like it's going to stay on and it's nice and on, adherent to the sterile matrix, I leave it on. If it looks like it wants to come off and it's what we call volatile, then I often just tell folks to take it off. And if it's somewhere in between, I'll often just trephinate it. And things that are kind of neat tricks to trephinate, you can get an 18-gauge needle and you can puncture it. Obviously, you got to numb up the finger first. Um, you can also, if you've ever seen, they make these small little cautery devices for eyeballs, believe it or not. And um, uh, ophthalmologic uh, electrocautery can, can work well, too, which is often in the ED, and you just burn a small hole through the nail, and that decompresses it. But that's just also something to keep in in your back pocket for whenever you're seeing these types of injuries. And, and another really quick question uh, for, for the residents that sees this in the ER and, and they're about to do some of these procedures, like how would they, uh, what, I guess, kind of what's the technique behind doing the digital block for uh, some of these, what, you know, whatever procedure may be needed for uh, that patient? That's a great question. Uh, digital blocks are relatively straightforward. For those of us that know the anatomy, or for, for hopefully you guys know the anatomy pretty well, you know, normally you can get it oftentimes with just a bowler digital block. So I oftentimes will tell folks to feel for the A1 pulley, which if you look at the, the palm crease or the distal palm, palm crease is right around that area. And oftentimes I will inject somewhere around 10 cc's of medication, which sounds like a lot, but it can take a while. It can take some time for these to kick in. I often, if I think it's a more proximal injury and I'm not sure that the median nerve or the ulnar nerve is going to get the entire distal phalanx, I often will give another 5 to 10, 10 cc's dorsally as well. Um, and normally for a volar, I just stick the needle right near the A1 pulley and go in the middle of the, go in the middle of, uh, mid-axis of the, the finger or middle of the portion of the finger, stick the needle in, aim it slightly radial, slightly ulnar, give, you know, five cc's each direction, pull all the way out, and then go dorsally and just literally go tangential across the, the digit and give another five or ten cc's. There's a lot of different ways. Um, they all tend to work pretty well. I think the most common mistake is not putting enough in. More than often, more often than, than not, are made. It, it can be a good 10 to 20 cc's that you need to put in to get these people out with anesthesia. And don't be surprised if it takes five to 10 minutes for the block to set up as well. Perfect. Oh, Dr. Gottschalk, thank you again so much for uh, coming in and kind of educating everybody that's listening to this uh, about finger, fingertip amputations. I hope everybody leaves this. Well, I know everybody who leaves this more knowledgeable than, than they came in. Uh, for those that are listening that kind of want to reach you, how can, how can the people reach out to you if, you know, if they ever want to like, get in contact with you? Sure. Not a problem. My pleasure. Um, the best way to reach out to me is probably by email. My email address is 
M as in Michael, B as in Brandon, G as in George, O, T as in Tom, T as in Tom, S, and then at emory.edu. So M-B-G-O-T-T-S at emory.edu. Feel, always feel free to reach out to me by email. And um, I think you guys are going to really enjoy residency. It's been fun getting to know you guys over the last couple of years at the VA and through Morehouse, and I think you guys are going to do fantastic. Thank you guys for listening to that episode with Dr. Goschalk. I hope you guys enjoyed it and learned a lot. You know, I don't, I definitely did. Listening to this again, I definitely took even more notes, guys. So, um, again, please go and leave a rating if you can right now. It takes literally 20 seconds. Please leave a rating and leave a review. Give us however many stars you want to give us and give us your honest feedback. And for show notes and more exclusive updates, go to nailedithortho.com. Put your email in there and stay updated, guys. All right. Have a good one.